What's up, everybody? Thanks so much for coming back to the Car Tech Garage for another week in automotive history. So let's buckle up and take a ride. Yeah, absolutely. Ready for some history. You know, it's been an exciting week. Lots of cars fixed, but we're ready to present you guys some history this week. I know, man. I'm just done with fixing cars this week. Yeah, I know. It like, is. As much as I love cars, <laughs> it is nice having a break from 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 time to time. Exactly. Like, we just go through the muck all day long trying to fix all this garbage. <laughs> yep. And then, like, we're like, all right, now we get to get to the fun part of cars. We're going to talk about history, and we're going to talk about racing. And then we're going to not talk about repair. Oh, gosh. That's what I always love. The girlfriend's like, how can you talk about cars all the time? You work on cars. You go home. You watch car videos. I'm like, well, when it's stuff that I actually yeah. am interested in, There's it's different nice. aspects. But when you're just working on them, that's that's a little bit different of a beast. But still love it. Yeah, exactly. It's like saying, well, you like sports, so how can you talk about sports all the time? Well, there's a lot of different sports. Yeah, you play sports, <laughs> and you watch Sports there's Center. you watch the football, game. Football, basketball, yeah. hockey. It's the I same think that's way. all I know. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's go ahead and kick it off. April 11th, 1993, when Max and I were just wee little babies. Yep. 28 years ago, Ayrton Senna won the Grand Prix of Europe. Now, that was held at Donington Park in England, mm-hmm. um, and he also took the fastest lap in his McLaren. This was his last season with McLaren as well before he went to Williams in 94. But he actually started from fourth place on the grid. Elaine Prost um, actually got pole. That time around, yeah. so he did not get pole position. However, of course, he came back around to one. This drive is probably regarded as one of his best um, because on the very first lap during a torrential downpour, he passed four drivers like right away in the first Seriously? lap. And these drivers were Carl Wedlinger, Damon Hill, Ellen Prost, and Michael Schumacher. So pretty big names. <laughs> uh, yeah, like the biggest names. <laughs> and he was like, uh, bye. <laughs> but, you know, took the lead in a single lap, torrential downpour. And it was amazing to watch Senna drive in the rain. It, it, everybody, you know, would always watch whenever the car would start to lose traction. It would look almost look like it would lift up and begin to hydroplane. And you would just see the car start to jiggle, like like almost like mm-hmm. a, a vibration. And you would just see it kind of settle back down before peeking into the next corner. And it literally looked like he was making the car dance in the rain. It's, you know, I can say from just watching any, any type of race in the rain is just such a crazy thing to think about where there's already a fine line when they're going that fast of traction and no traction. (laughs) And now you add an element like water on the track that makes it a whole different ball game, but they're still, still competing, you know, exactly. And the lines are different because like in a lot of tracks, certain puddles will form. So you have to take a totally different racing line. I mean, it's racing's hard. Yeah, especially in the rain. That's, Indeed. I think that's what really separates some of the greats is is being able exactly. to drive in that adverse condition. Yep, that's what they always say. You know, you can have a faster car, more power, more grip, but rain is the great equalizer on the racetrack. <laughs> that's when true skill and talent and, you know, cojones yep. come out. You know what I mean? <laughs> I can agree. All right, so April 12th, 1928, speaking of, you know, grapefruits, um, the first Opal rocket car test run was made. Um, so yeah, obviously it takes something to strap some rockets to the back of a car in 1928 and see how fast you can go. But um, Fritz von Opel was a madman. And for that, we thank him because they made the Opal rack. It was just called the RAK, um, you know, the raquette. And it was basically a car, no engine, no brakes. They just put 12 rockets, molded them into the rear. And obviously those were meant for propulsion. That just blows my mind. Yeah. I can't believe that, you know, 
I don't even have words for it, truthfully. Well, I mean, it was almost like a predecessor of like land speed racing cars, you know, because they ended up going with jet turbine engines and everything. Um, But it gets crazier from here because the Opal Rack 1 was followed by the Rack 2, which was fitted with like these little wings on the side just to help it hold to the ground. Um, But the Rack 2, they put 24 rockets. They're like, well, let's just double the amount of rockets that go (laughs) in the back of it. What could go wrong? Yeah, so they took that on, on a... Test track in Berlin, 143 miles per hour in 1928. With rockets strapped yeah, to the back. Rockets strapped to the back, no brakes, and, and obviously little to no safety equipment. You know, a leather cap was a helmet back in the day. You know, no gloves, none of that. <laughs> yeah, there was safety wasn't even a yeah, word yet. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so um, after that, they ended up, you know, ditching the, you know, like uh, the wheeled vehicles. Well, they're still wheeled vehicles, but they actually put them on like railroad tracks mm-hmm. because the, the speeds were getting pretty considerable. And, um, you know, the rack three ended up being a railway car experiment and they actually held a couple of experiments. The first one, they put 24 rockets on the back again. It went well over hundred miles an hour. I think it was like 150 something. Uh, the second test, they used 30 rockets, um, got up to 157 miles an hour. And I mean, in 1928, this was really fast. So they decided to go, they, they decided to go one more time, strapped even more rockets to this thing. Um, but unfortunately that second, uh, test run, when they were trying to, to break another record, it ended up coming off the tracks and uh, crashed at a very high rate of speed, killing mm. the driver, unfortunately. Um, you know, it was crazy time. <laughs> but the Rack 2, you know, the one that um, 143, Fritz von Opel himself actually drove that car. Jeez. It's, yeah, that's... Yeah, he didn't drive the railway experiment. One. Mm, he was like, just, "All right." He was like, "I got a, I got a business to run." I'm, gonna, yeah, I'm not, I'm not that crazy. <laughs> to hire some kid. Oh gosh, <laughs> I mean, that's how it is, though. You know, it's it's um, almost like war in, in a sense. You know, all all the the people with money they are a little bit older. You know, they fund all these drivers and all these cars, and they just pick the most talented youngster and the bravest to go out and do battle. Yeah, it, it really is. You know, if you look back in history and just comparison to what it is nowadays, you know, you have billions of dollars in it versus, oh, you know, a few guys with, with a nice pocket yeah. full of money, <laughs> but still a whole different ballgame. Exactly. All right. So moving forward, April 13th, uh, 1986, 35 years ago, um, Ayrton Senna won at Jerez in a Lotus still. He was still obviously racing for Lotus in 86, and he beat Nigel Mansell to win the Spanish Grand Prix. Now, the cool part about this, you know, I mean, it was still a pretty interesting race, but the cool part is it was to this date, the narrowest win in formula one history. When they came around the last corner, they were neck and neck. The gap was 14 one thousandths of a second. That's yeah. Like this close. Is, very close. And the camera and technology in, in 1986 wasn't quite as good as it was today. So they had to play that replay a few times. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> All right. April 14, 2002, Another F1. Uh, 19 years ago, the San Marino Grand Prix was held at uh, Autodromo Enzo di Eden. Uh, I messed that one up. It's still <laughs> early, guys. It's called the Autodromo Enzo Edino Ferrari. Now, for those who know, know. For those who don't, this track is called Imola. And uh, they are actually going to be racing there tomorrow, which I'm pretty excited about. Yeah, I yeah. know. And you've been talking about it all week. I've been annoying about it all week. <laughs> And I'm excited because I, I cannot wait to see this new Red Bull Mercedes matchup. But mm-hmm. um, this race ended up getting won by Michael Schumacher. It was 2002. So obviously it got won by Michael Schumacher. <laughs> um, <laughs> his teammate Rubens Barrichello finished second. Um, but I mean, just to kind of showcase on Michael Schumacher, I mean, an incredible driver, obviously one of the best, pretty much the best apart from Lewis at this point, you know, just in terms of, of outright numbers. 
Um, but you know, everybody would always ask why he was so fast, like why he thought he was so much faster than anybody. Um, and he could never really answer. All he could say was, you know, he just went out there and drove, did his best, and he had a great feeling for the limit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, many great drivers through history, that's really their only response. It's they just have a great feeling for the actual limit of the car, not their perceived limit. And they're able to push that so consistently, just like Jim Clark was able to, um, I mean, blisteringly fast. I mean, the only driver to match um, Michael Schumacher's dominance in Formula One is, of course, Lewis Hamilton. And, you know, a lot of people say that if Jim Clark hadn't been taken too soon, that he may be up there with them as well. And I, I completely agree with that. It is, you know, with, with racing and just the progression and how much these guys, you know, push further and further and further, you know, every single week. Um, it's just amazing for to see people, you know, of, of that talent and, and doing something like driving a race car around a track as fast as they possibly can while yeah. competing with a bunch of other people that are the best in the world <laughs> yeah. that are doing the same thing. You know? It's like, it's, it's like with NASCAR. I always tell people, you know, and don't be wrong. I'm not like the, the biggest NASCAR fan in the world. I like it. I like every form of racing, mm-hmm. but you know, everybody always hates on NASCARs. They're like, Oh, left turn, floor it, left turn, floor it. Oh no. But driving in a circle is, you know, conceptually easy, which makes it way harder to do it than the next guy can. Do. <laughs> exactly. So like we're talking about, you know, just incrementally better, you know, being incrementally better. And um, yeah, it really makes all the difference, especially in racing. It all does. Right. And when you're going around a circle at 200 miles an hour, that makes things completely little, different. Little, you know? Yeah, a little bit <laughs> a little bit more difficult. Yes. All right. So uh, April 15th, 1912, we're going to take it pretty far back here, 109 years ago. Mr. Washington Augustus Roebling II died on the Titanic. Now, why are we talking about the Titanic? That's because Washington Augustus Roebling II was actually a race car builder and racer, um, he actually took this race car that he built himself with another guy called the Roebling Planch race car. And he raced at the 1910 Vanderbilt cup race and got second place. Mm-hmm. Um, now again, you know, typically we like to talk about the winners and not always the runner ups, but this one's pretty interesting, especially with us being from Cincinnati. Okay. And you guys from New York will really appreciate this as well. But Washington Roebling, the second was the son of Charles Roebling who was the brother of Washington A. Roebling, who was the son of John Roebling. So Charles and Washington I were brothers. John A. Roebling, of course, designed and built Cincinnati's own Roebling suspension bridge, Mm -hmm. and he designed the Brooklyn Bridge. Of course, he died before its completion. So Washington I took over to see its completion, and Charles thought it well to name his son after his brother. That's awesome. That, yeah. That's super cool, especially coming from Cincinnati. You know, I just passed the Roebling Bridge on the way into the radio show. Exactly. So, you know, that's kind of neat. Yeah, so it's, ni- it's nice to know that, you know, that guy, his, uh, I guess his, what would it be, like his nephew or something? Something along those lines, yeah. Oh, no, it would be his grandson. Yeah, it would be his grandson. Yeah. Wow, I'm way off. His grandson <laughs> was a race car driver. Sweet. That's cool. <laughs> but that's because John Roebling, he probably would have been into race cars too, but it was a little bit before, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, those, uh, the race cars came after his time. They were worried <laughs> just about cars. <laughs> yeah, it was good. They didn't even have cars yet. Yeah, like no. they were, and it's, it's crazy to think, like if, you, if you've ever gone and stood at the foot of the Brooklyn Bridge or even here at Cincinnati's Roebling Bridge, it is incredible the amount of engineering that they had to do, you know, back in the 1860s. I mean, the blocks are huge. They've got to weigh 1,000 pounds apiece. Um, you know, it's just amazing that all that stuff is held up over time. And that was before, you know, the most simple automobiles were even built. Yeah, and large machinery. Yeah. You know, it's just it's, crazy. Yeah, human ingenuity is, I mean, it's exactly that. <laughs> it is. All right, moving forward again. April 16th, 1922, almost 100 years ago. 
40,000 people got together to watch a race. And this was at the San Francisco Board Speedway for its inaugural opening race. Um, It was a one and a quarter mile wooden board track, two by four track, just like we always talk about. 38 degree banks. I mean, that's steep. In a wood track? (laughs) On a wood track, 38 degree banks. And uh, this race ended up uh, being won by this guy named Harry Hartz, who was a pretty famous race car driver at the time, in a Duesenberg. Um, He averaged 111 miles an hour. Which, I mean, 1922, that's fast, especially when you're still accounting, taking in turns and all that stuff. Uh, But, I mean, back in those days, Duesenberg was by far the most powerful car out there. I mean, a huge straight eight, over 250 horsepower, over 300 with a supercharger. People would essentially buy them, and they would strip them down to race weight and then dominate almost every other car. It's just crazy. It is awesome. Yeah, I would – Duesenberg is is really – such an interesting company and their cars are unbelievably well built. Like mm-hmm. any remaining ones today, like I always like watch episodes like Jay Leno's garage, you know, way more popular stuff. And <laughs> it, it's awesome to see, you know, just how much care and craftsmanship and passion went into those cars back then. It makes today's cars just look like cookie cutters, you know, like, it, you know, it, it's, I couldn't use a better term to describe it than cookie cutter. I mean, you hit that nail right on the on the head. Yeah, but anyway, I guess the Duesenbergs weren't very safe, weren't very fuel efficient, obviously. But <laughs> well, whatever, yeah, it was the 1920s, yeah, man. Yeah. Minor yeah, the details. Roaring 20s. Minor details. Exactly. I'd still drive one. <laughs> for sure. And that's the coolest part. Jay Leno, that's the funniest thing. He said this is one of his few older cars, like, you know, like pre-war cars that can still keep up with traffic. it's like that's awesome like you know think comparatively i mean duesenberg was awesome back in the day all right last one up april 17th 1971 49 years ago mr jackie stewart uh he scored the first ever win for tyrrell at the spanish grand prix now this was only the fifth race that tyrrell had entered with its own chassis it's 001 chassis they won seven more times seven by stewart and then one by his teammate but, I mean, all of that success culminated in Tyrrell winning the Constructors' Championship in its first full season with Formula One with its own car. I mean, that's, that's almost unheard of. I mean, think if, if somebody, you know, like Racing Point or something like that um, from last year, you know, just came out and won the entire championship with, like, you know, their, their first time out. Mm-hmm. That'd be crazy. Um, one of my other favorite things, just to hit another point um, while I'm thinking about Tyrrell, the P34 six-wheeler. If anybody has never seen the P34 six-wheeler F1 car, you got to look it up. He had like two, I think like 10 or 11-inch wheels in the front. I mean, four. Oh, okay. Two and two. Yeah, Yeah, four wheels in the front, two in the back. And it was actually a a decently successful car. I mean, it it didn't win a championship, but it did get uh, one race win, 14 podiums. It actually got a pole uh, position as well. I mean, it was just really, really cool. I just that seems cool, and I I've seen it, but I just thought about the failure, you know, that could happen with yeah, having more, parts more wheels and more steering components. But yeah. but yeah, I think I mean more grip. The wheels were lower, so it was actually better aerodynamically because mm-hmm. you know, they were they they were closer to the ground. Even um, companies like March uh, March Engineering shortly after tried to do a six wheeler of their own, but they did two in the front, and four in the back, and that one was. A, Blatant failure. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, just more traction in a straight line might be great, but yeah, exactly. Not going around turns. Exactly, but obviously, you know, the F one cars are now are faster than they've ever been. You mm-hmm. know, and it's it's you can't really argue that. No, but, not at all. Yeah, but anyway, F one's still exciting. I'm super excited for 2022. So any of my F one fans out there, 
um, you know, go ahead, message us and uh, let us know what you think. Let me know who you think is going to win this weekend and next weekend. I want to hear from you guys. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thanks so much for tuning into the yeah. Cartech Garage and this week in automotive history. We love you. Yeah. We also, you know, want to shout out to you guys. You know, we're almost at 600 downloads now. I know we have our, you know, video up on YouTube. Um, so we're going to try to do some video podcast here and there with some more interesting stuff and we should have some more upcoming, but just want to thank all you guys for listening and, and giving us so much support. <laughs> Bye. This podcast has been brought to you by Almer's Auto Care in Cincinnati, Ohio, providing service beyond compare since 1936.